Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade me. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the promises of it. We're thankful that it's a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Oh, Lord, how we need you in a dark moment. Father, by the preaching of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that this people this morning would be changed supernaturally. Lead us to this end for your glory. Amen. Steve Johnson is the head football coach for my alma mater, the Bethel University Royals. He's been there for 32 years. With around 100 young men on the team each year, he's been speaking into so many young men's lives. He's mentored hundreds, maybe thousands of men in that time. I was one of them. As many young men are, I was green, both spiritually and in my football sense, when I showed up to Bethel for that first preseason football camp. And as I grew up those formative college years, Coach Jay, as we called him, spoke about much more than just football. Many of his illustrations or wisdom had application both on the football field and in life following Christ. One such profound statement that stuck with me is that it's one that he used a few times my sophomore year. We had a number of injuries on the team. We were struggling to perform up to expectations. And during many teachable moments in practice and at halftime of games that weren't going that great, he would say with passion, don't doubt in the dark what you know is true in the light. He meant many things by that. When the game isn't going well and it's easy to throw in the towel and lose tenacity, don't. Trust that your teammate's going to do the right thing and be there for you. Trust the game plan that the coaches put in for that week. Trust the preparation. Very profound that became to me 
is that was also a year of some personal and spiritual challenges in my life. There was a lot of hard moments in my life during that time, and I needed to remember to look up to get the focus off of myself and my current circumstance and focus on what I knew was true, even if it didn't feel true at the moment. Habakkuk chapter 3 is a tremendous example of not doubting in the dark what is true in the light. If you're just joining us this week, we're in the third and final week preaching through this short three-chapter book of Habakkuk. Today our text is from chapter 3. Please follow along in your Bibles. There's also an outline in your bulletin. In Habakkuk, we've seen the last two weeks that God was indeed still working. His faithfulness hadn't changed. He wasn't surprised by the unfaithfulness of Israel or Judah. And the Chaldeans who were moving to lay siege to Judah wasn't outside of his knowledge. In fact, he was using it all for his own glory and for Judah's good. In chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's testimony that though he doesn't always see it, though it scares him, and though his bones have turned to mush, he awaits this gloomy prophecy and he trusts God. We see a powerful conclusion to this short journal-like book from Habakkuk. The main point of this sermon is that Enduring faith stays fixed on God's work, revealed throughout history, and promised in the future for his people. This sermon is about how to not doubt in the dark, which you know is true in the light. Despite Judah's dire situation, Habakkuk receives a vision of God high above the earth, moving and acting and orchestrating events for Judah's preservation and ultimate good, even though it was going to get ugly for a little bit. Inevitably, between Eden and heaven, those who call on the name of the Lord will experience trouble. We go to Habakkuk's psalm in chapter 3 to find hope in God's redeeming work. Now to the text. In verse 1, it says this, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Chapter 3 is set apart from chapters 1 and 2, as it's given its own title here. Shigianoth is only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it's in the Psalms. It most likely is referring to a song. This chapter and its poetry and prose resembles much of what we find in the Psalms. Number one, enduring faith acknowledges God's work while in the dark. In verse two, Habakkuk acknowledges God's work while he waits for the impending doom and darkness of the Babylonian siege, Judah's exile, and eventually Babylon's judgment. Habakkuk was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He had likely heard the book of the law read in the temple. And he knew of God's past uh, works. And in verse 2, he cries out, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. 
Habakkuk is thinking both of his exchange that he's had with God in chapters 1 and 2, when God spoke of his judgment of Judah and subsequently the Chaldean Empire, who were also known as the Babylonians. But the following verses also give us the context that he was thinking more broadly about the history of the nation of Israel. And Habakkuk shares what his response to God's work is as well. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk doesn't bristle against the challenging circumstance that God is bringing. He doesn't launch out on his own and try to make a new way forward. No, he acknowledges God's work and sovereign rule over the earth and over his life. By acknowledging his fear, he's acknowledging God's ability to bring judgment and his rightful role to do so. There's a place in scripture that says this another way. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the starting point for good things in Habakkuk's heart and also in ours. Only when we acknowledge God's rightful place in our lives as sovereign Lord who's creator and who rules over the universe in holiness and in righteousness do we see our need for his mercy and his saving grace. Everything else starts to make sense when God is at the center. Now, us acknowledging God's sovereignty or not doesn't change the reality of it. He is sovereign and he rules over everything, whether we acknowledge it or not. Acknowledging God's place over creation and fearing God more than anything else gives us peace. Now, what we know about God has been revealed in Scripture. We know his character, his love, his justice, his mercy and wrath. And we can have peace and hope no matter the, cir- the circumstance. Now, think of the significance of Habakkuk's situation for a moment. Almost all signs of God's faithfulness had left Habakkuk in this moment. Judah's wickedness was rampant and the original reason that he cried out to God. Then God tells Habakkuk of the impending takeover by an even more sinister empire. And after hearing of the justice that God will have both with Judah and also with Babylon, what does Habakkuk do? Habakkuk bows his heart and soul before God. Habakkuk acknowledges God's sovereign position over his life and over God's chosen people, Judah. We see Habakkuk's enduring faith. Last week, Rick did a good job helping us discern some different facets of faith. Gnosis is knowledge. You have to have the knowledge. A census is assent. You have the knowledge and you assent to it. But this last part, fiducia, requires your life's action. Now, fiducia is a kind of trust that you live by. I'm not a lawyer like Rick. I had to look up fiduciary this week. 
in its adjective form, it means this, involving trust, especially between that of the trustee and the beneficiary. I love that. I think it describes for us perfectly what enduring faith looks like in the dark. The fiduciary part of our faith requires our life's action. We must acknowledge in the dark that God is still God and that he's still sovereign. Even if we don't know what the outcome of the bad circumstance that we're going through will be. We work through bad circumstances as wisely and as faithful as we can in a a way that honors him. But we need to stop and acknowledge that it's him that we fear that he is our Lord and that we trust his saving power, both in our circumstance and in eternity. He's the trustee. We're the beneficiary. Do you trust him? Here's an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. The book, The Screwtape Letters, is a fictional story where Uncle Screwtape is a more senior demon and he's mentoring the junior demon, his nephew, Wormwood. The subject of their letters is a new Christian whose progress and spiritual growth they're assigned to thwart. He writes this to his nephew, Wormwood. Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. Even in the dark, especially in the dark, enduring faith acknowledges God's work that he's done on our behalf. Number two, enduring faith asks for God's mercy while in the dark. Habakkuk had heard of God's work and continues in the second part of verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now Habakkuk asks for God to show his work again for his chosen people. He entreats God to work on their behalf. Habakkuk isn't vague in his ask. As the news of Judah's impending judgment looms, Habakkuk asked for God's mercy. Habakkuk has the right assessment of God's power. He doesn't just ask here for some generalized help. He sees God's power to destroy them forever, to damn them. And he pleads for mercy. He doesn't even ask God to stay his wrath completely. He just prays that God would show them mercy in the midst of his righteous wrath. Now, asking for God's mercy in our lives often gets confused with asking for God to do the work that we think would be best in our life. But that isn't what Habakkuk asks for here. God is about your holiness, just like he was about Judah's holiness. And he won't spare you pain in your life if it's what's needed to make you holy. So let our asks 
look like Habakkuk's. I know you're faithful, Lord. You've seen fit to allow this in my life. Remember mercy now and help me bear up under this burden. Grow me to reflect your glory and your goodness through this pain, through this tough time, through this challenge. God, continue your work in me. Number three, enduring faith remembers God's work while in the dark. And what started as a prayer now turns to a grand vision of God and his glory over and above creation, acting on behalf of his people. This part of our passage is called a theophany. A theophany is a vision or appearance of God. This one in Habakkuk 3 is the most expansive and elaborate in the whole of the Old Testament. Bible scholar David Gowan says, Theophanies are a composite of images drawn from the most awesome images in the natural world, used freely and poetically in an effort to represent the emotional effect of experiencing the immediate presence of God himself. This theophany goes from verse 3 all the way to verse 15. In many cases, it looks back what God has done in the history of the nation of Israel. But it also looks forward to what God will do as he judges Babylon. Verse 3 starts by saying, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Teman is the southern part of Edom. Edom is on the south end of Israel or on the north end of the Sinai Peninsula and was the wilderness where the nation of Israel went after crossing the Red Sea from Egypt. This was reminiscent of what God did for Israel after their exodus from Egypt. Most commentators think that Mount Paran is synonymous with Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law from God. I'm going to read these verses, and there's a beauty in the poetry. Whatever, If you need to close your eyes and picture this vision of God, whatever you need to do to picture this well, follow along in your scriptures. Verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? Habakkuk remembered God's work for the nation of Israel and what he had done for his nation to give him hope while in the dark. Now, what better way to be distracted from the darkness than by remembering in the grandest of theophanies how great the Lord is? 
His splendor fills the cosmos so that the whole earth is full of His presence. In verse 4, the brightness of His presence was profound. So much so that rays went forth from His hands. Ezekiel 127 says of the one seated on the throne. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. In verse 5, God is the Lord over pestilence and plague. Remember in Egypt when God used both to show his power and glory and to free his nation from the grip of slavery. In verse 6, we see that God stands over and above creation. Psalm 11.4 puts it this way. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. His perspective about the events on the earth is so different than ours, isn't it? Habakkuk and us, we're easily myopic. We just see what's right right in front of us. We lack this perspective like God. And God sits over and above looking down. In verse 6 also, the eternal mountains and the everlasting hills sink low. Now, God established them both, and though immovable and sometimes insurmountable for a nomadic and wandering people, God's movement shakes them at their footing beneath the earth. In verse 7, we read that the tents of Kishon were an affliction. The curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. For nomadic people who lived in tents, With the earth quaking and winds thunder and lightning clashing, great terror would have seized them as God made his way to judge Babylon. In verse 8, we see God's ability to control rivers and the sea. The sea was known for chaos and disorder. God has power over the deep and its chaos, and he shows that he can bring order out of chaos. Habakkuk remembered the mighty God who was Lord over Judah and Lord over Babylon to find hope in the midst of darkness. And brothers and sisters, what Habakkuk hadn't seen yet, Jesus born, crucified, and raised again, we have seen in the darkness. Remember Jesus. Remember that he came. Remember that he died and was raised to free you from bondage to sin and its enslaving power. Don't forget in the dark that he was raised and he's defeated death. He's seated above the earth at the right hand of God on the throne in heaven. And nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is, if you'll put your faith in him. Do you know him? Have you trusted in him to deliver you from this present darkness and bring you to himself permanently in the new heavens and the new earth forever? Have you trusted him? 
if you haven't trusted in Jesus for salvation from your sins today. That's why God sent his son to earth. To rescue you. To rescue me and any who call on his name. He secured our salvation by his death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters who are in the midst of darkness and doubt. Remember Jesus so that you wouldn't grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. Now I feel like a broken record. I feel like I say this every time I preach. But come to the Lord's Supper. Come every week or as often as you can. It's not something that we check off our list. It's not a, a liturgy thing. We gather to remember what Jesus has done every week. It's central to our life as the body of Christ. We need to remember Jesus and what he's done. I promise you it'll bless your life. It'll help you stay focused on what's best and most important. It'll help you not doubt in the dark what you know is true in the light. That God loves you and he's with you. If you're in Christ, he's always for you. He's always working for your good. And he is mighty to save and to deliver you from whatever ails you, whether in this life or the next. This brings us to number four. Enduring faith expects God's work while in the dark. Verse 8 and 9 are a transition from considering God over and above creation, advancing forth for his nation, to the vigorous action that he takes on their behalf. This is a picture of God riding to battle on behalf of his nation. The point of the theophany wasn't just to draw thought to past actions, but also to communicate God's continued action and sovereignty over the earth to act on behalf of his nation. He will strike down all evil and anything that stands against his will. Bible commentator James Bruckner says that at this point, Habakkuk's song turns toward the cosmic battle against the persistence of evil in the world, which continually threatens to undo creation. Now follow along with me in the second part of verse 8. Again, whatever you need to do, to picture God. When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing 
as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Enduring faith has acknowledged God, asked for his mercy, remembered his work, and now continues to expect his power and might to work to redeem Judah and a broken and distraught creation. Habakkuk had faith in God to deliver him and Judah from their current travails. And in this, Habakkuk's hope is revealed. His expectation becomes clear. Now, what that meant historically was deliverance from the coming judgment handed down by God through Babylon to the nation of Judah. But there's also a final redemption needed from sin and the brokenness of creation. And we understand today that our enduring faith as Christians means we're hoping in and we're expecting God to act on our behalf. We're waiting on him for deliverance from the evils of our age. We wait for him to deliver us from the infirmity of our spiritual flesh as we struggle against sin. And we wait for him to lift the frailty of our physical flesh as we will receive new bodies one day. And we see in this theophany the epic actions of God on behalf of his people. We see his great power and sovereignty to achieve and secure our salvation. Now as Christians, we hope in and expect God's coming deliverance from this broken and disordered world. It's held together by his grace, but we feel the weight of its brokenness and expect God's deliverance from it all one day. And while the Lord tarries, while we wait for this deliverance, we understand, number five, that enduring faith isn't easy in the dark. After this grand theophany, Habakkuk shares his personal and physical response to this appearance of God and his majesty and grandeur. Now, verses 16 and 17 also serve as a, a bridge. Now, a bridge, musically, is often to display a contrast or a distinction from what just came. This is a very strong contrast. We've seen a beautiful and magnificent view of God. And now Habakkuk comes back to his current situation. Verses 16 and 17. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Habakkuk says that his body trembles. His lips quiver. His bones become rotten and turn to mush. As Habakkuk waits for what Babylon will do to Judah, and what God day will one day do to Babylon in judgment, his body is overcome by grief and fear. 
But notice, that doesn't mean that he has lost faith. His faith is enduring because he understands the current circumstance, however dire, is part of what God is doing. He cannot change it, but he, ha- he can have faith that what God is doing is good and right and just, even though he might not understand it. Habakkuk goes on to share more of the situation surrounding when he tells of no blossoms on the fig tree, no grapes on the vine, no flocks in the pasture, and no cattle in the stalls. Figs and grapes were really simple, basic, elementary food for all in Israel during this time. Sheep and goats would have been basic animals for their wool and meat and milk. Cattle were more of a luxury. All are absent. How will they live? How will they survive? Enduring faith is not easy while we are in dark moments. How many of you can relate, even a little bit, with what Habakkuk must have been feeling? How many of you have had incapacitating fear or anxiety in the past 12 months? Or you feel like you can't even get out of bed? You're not sure how you're going to go on. Maybe you've been unsure about where next week's meals are going to come from. Or how you'll pay the bills that are soon due. Maybe it's been grief at a lost loved one. Or maybe there's been lost dreams when you lost your job. Or maybe a friendship ended or changed this year. Enduring faith isn't easy. There are moments, maybe many moments, when we need help when we're in a dark place. This is one of the gifts of the body of Christ. We need each other. When one falls down, proverbially, if you're alone, there's no one there to pick you up. We need to remind each other of who God is and what he's done for us. It's easy to doubt that the truth about God is real when it doesn't feel real. So reach out. Get help. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ. Now, one thing I've noticed in my time as a pastor elder here at Orchard is that some of you, maybe I should say us, don't want to come to your pastors when it's probably your pastor's help, counsel, or encouragement that you probably need. But we are here to care for your souls, to help you see Jesus in your moment of need, to know him more through the ministry of the word to your soul and prayer for you. We recognize that you may need additional help. You might need more than just your pastor or a brother and sister in Christ. We can help with some referrals and great resources in that way. Notice that Habakkuk's bones turn to mush. 
There was a physical response to the spiritual burden and weight that he was under. We are spiritual and physical beings. That's how God wired us in his image. Don't try to deal only physically with issues that are also spiritual. Sometimes predominantly spiritual. And sometimes physical help is warranted to deal with the weight of the darkness and depression that may come with these moments. Now, Habakkuk could have just as easily stayed in a pile of mush and not gotten up and not moved on. But he didn't stay there. He wasn't going to be a victim. He chose instead to be a survivor, to continue hoping and trusting even though it was hard. Bruckner says of Habakkuk, his hope is not what he... in." His hope is not in what he sees, but in what he has yet to see. He's prepared to live by faith in unseen promises. And sometimes we can't see in the dark. So we hope in what we don't see. We hope in what we've been promised by Jesus Christ's resurrection. Number six. Enduring faith proclaims God's work and brings light to the dark. Verse 18 continues. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. All that Habakkuk has been through and that he's about to go through. And he says he will rejoice and take joy in God. Oh, the wonderful culmination that this is in the story of Habakkuk's enduring faithfulness. The righteous one shall live by faith. And Habakkuk is showing that his is a genuine faith in God Almighty. Reflecting on 2020 was different than a lot of years. Sorry if that's overstating the obvious. We're reflecting on the personal and professional ministry and cultural things that occurred produced both thanksgiving in my soul, but also questions. Questions about why people I love suffer. Questions about the church in America. Questions about what God is doing with all the political unrest, the injustice, the pestilence with COVID. And I notice how easy it is for me to worship and praise God and have faith in him when things are swell. When everything turns out the way that I was hoping. But to rejoice when all of life looks dark and gloomy, when bad news is frequent and common, that is when what I'll live by is really revealed. Will I live by faith in God's redeeming power even in the darkest hour? Or will I abandon his hope and promises and make my own way? In Habakkuk's life, it was revealed that he would live by faith in a God who can save. The God who sits enthroned above the earth, looking down on his creation that he created and that he loves. Though darkness had descended for a moment, he would rejoice still and take joy in God. This is the message that we most need to remind ourselves of. 
especially when we're wading through the marshy wastelands of our soul. We need to rejoice not in our circumstance, however good or bad. We need to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Christians, we are heralds of King Jesus. Just as John the Baptist announced the coming of the kingdom, we've now been baptized into the same calling. We herald the coming king. This brings light to the dark when we preach it to our own souls. And this brings light to the darkness in our world. How lamentable. It's painful to see so many Christians spend time heralding political candidates and get into nasty debates about temporal kingdoms and temporal politics. D.A. Carson said this in the year 2005, 16 years ago, about political animosity and Christians evangelizing. Political animosity is not a new problem. There's nothing new under the sun, right? He said this, When you're busy hating everybody and denouncing everybody, seeking political solutions to everything, it's very difficult to evangelize, isn't it? Now, Carson acknowledges that there's a way to engage politically that's healthy, but says this, At the end of the day, if you can't do it with compassion and gently and leave doors open for evangelism, boy, you destroy everything. I think one of the devil's tactics with respect to the church on the right today is to make them so hate everybody else that at the end of the day, they can't be believed anywhere. Not even in the proclamation of the gospel. End quote. Brothers and sisters, social media has become a cesspool as it relates to political engagement. Take a higher road. Prayerfully consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds and to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. Do so cautiously or not at all on social media. Christians are to be known for their God and Savior. Herald the King. Rejoice in your God regardless of what's happening around you. And one of the beautiful things about the church is it's a certainty. Because of our King who sits enthroned above the earth, we can see the rise and fall of kingdoms throughout the history. And know that our anchor holds. This is our message. This is what we rally around. This is why we gather and remember what God has done while waiting expectantly for his return. Lastly, enduring faith will not be disappointed. Verse 19 says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Now deer are graceful and coordinated. They're sure-footed even on treacherous terrain. Habakkuk says that God will make our feet like theirs as we navigate treacherous moments in life. Now most of us don't have exposure to deer very often. 
and not usually on the mountain heights. So watch this quick video that illustrates really well. Youngsters are fast learners, and they're now almost as sure-footed as their parents. That's great, isn't it? That wasn't a deer, it was an ibex, which is like a deer-goat cross or something. And I certainly know that I don't feel like a fleet-footed ibex quickly and nimbly scaling the cliff to avoid the predator. Quite frankly, I feel like a husky, clod-footed galoof. But don't underestimate the power of God to give you what you need in your moment of weakness. Don't doubt in the dark what you know is true in the light. Now, what Habakkuk hadn't seen yet, we have. We have more to remember to hope in. The lion of the tribe of Judah that Habakkuk was expectantly waiting for has come. And he rules over the universe. The great enemy of creation, death, has been defeated. Jesus defeated death when he was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. And now we wait. We are not victims. We're survivors by God's grace. We are conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And those that he has ransomed and redeemed will reign with him forever. This is his working that we expect. This is the light that we bring to the darkness as we rejoice in the God of our salvation. And by his strength and because of his mighty power, we will not be disappointed. He will sustain us and he is worthy of all praise. Let's endure in faithfulness as we look to Jesus and how much better he is than everything else. Amen? Please stand. I'm going to close with the benediction that I'm going to read from Psalm chapter 145, verses 3 through 9. Bow your heads with me. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, we will meditate. 
We shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and we will declare your greatness. We shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Amen.